This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised. In the last episode, we heard the shocking details of the night of the Stocks family murders. In this episode, we will discuss the legal developments that have taken place in Heath's case over the years. We will be hearing from Matt Carter, Rob Evett, and Michael Kaiser. Michael Kaiser is the attorney who handled Heath's most recent bid for clemency in 2021. So before we get started and dive into talking about the legalities of what Heath has tried over the years, let's talk a little bit about the last episode. Hearing Heath walk through the events of that night, kind of step by step, really answered a lot of questions that I had in my mind about the case and how everything played out and hope that it did the same for people who were involved in the case, close to it, or even just in the town. Something like that happening in a small community causes a lot of trauma for people you wouldn't think that would be involved, but because it happens so close to home, it does affect a lot of people. And I just think back to when you and I talked about it, and it was very descriptive. And you mentioned how Heath describing seeing the television reflection in Jack's glasses. I could see that. I could picture it as he talked. I could picture the whole thing as Heath was telling it from the moment he pulled into the driveway. I felt like I was there. And the same thing with Rob and his story about that night, because what if he had driven Heather home? What if he would have walked in on that? Would things be different? I can see why he said a lot of what ifs. And I'm sure Heath has a lot of what ifs as well. To be honest, I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of what ifs because there were so many people along the way that could have at some point stopped this, but didn't. Rob mentioned how he has survivor's guilt. A lot of people probably have similar feelings because of all of those what if questions. Regardless of what you believe happened that night, after hearing everything that's been presented in in this podcast, I think that it would be very hard to not at least acknowledge the fact that there was probably some level of involvement by Jack. As we heard, I mean, even Matt Carter thinks that. We talked about Mac right after he found out the news that Jack had been abusing multiple boys and Heath in particular how he went to his boss and wanted to withdraw the guilty plea. And finding out that that was not in their authority to do, Mac didn't just give up. He was still trying to help. And he ended up representing Heath in his clemency bid a couple years later completely pro bono because he wanted to still try to help in some way. So you worked pro bono to have Heath's sentence commuted and met with several of the board members. Um, We talked about that briefly. So since this didn't go through, why do you think that it didn't go through? What do you mean? Like his clemency then. Which attempt hasn't he? The first, well, the one that you were working with him. The one I was working Mm -hmm. with? Well, he, he, he changed lawyers. I don't know what the composition of the parole board was. I believe his lawyer... It was delayed. The hearing was delayed. I believe the hearing was coming up when I had agreed to do it outside of my work because that's the only way I could do anything because I could not do that post-conviction work within my capacity as a lawyer at the Capital Conflicts Office. So I did it on my own time to help Heath. I told him I would. And so I think I wrote the parole board. and also knew some of the parole board members. I even went out to dinner. And it was a 
very fruitful and it looked very good because the time was right. Betty Dickey had gotten involved, I believe it was the special prosecutor at the time, prosecuting Walls, possibly had already been convicted, I can't recall, but it was just the perfect set of circumstances for that to be granted. And Heath, again, was influenced by some lawyer. I mean, we were on the cusp of getting something done, and it was almost, from what I was told by one of the members, it was a done deal. It was a shame. So I had things working for him, felt confident. We had the governor, I was a Republican governor. In fact, Sarah Sanders Huckabee's father, Mike Huckabee, whom I'd met with my father. My father was involved in politics and knew a lot of people. We went to a duck hunting lodge. Governor happened to be there. I recall sitting down with Governor Huckabee and we were just discussing death penalty. It was a very interesting conversation I had with him, and he was asking things about it. And I was getting the opportunity to give my take on why I thought the death penalty was not good because of the different jurisdictions that apply it differently. And there's no uniformity in it's given, and, and, and there's so many mistakes and the appeals and the cost. It was an interesting conversation. I don't know if I had a direct conversation about Heath Stocks or not, but I had a connection with him. I had connections with the parole board, and the press was coming out, and Betty Dickey, she was uh, championing Heath's cause at the time. It was a great time to get something done for Heath, and he was contacted by an attorney who I think presented an opportunity for him to appear on a television show. Wasn't the first attorney that had taken advantage of him. There was some guy from Missouri, I think, who was known to do that type of thing, get a lot of publicity. And, well, they got their slot on the television show. I can't remember what it was, Maury or something. Povich? Montel Williams. Oh, it was Montel yeah. Williams. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, they had their 15 minutes of fame there nationally, and I was told to shut it down. I was fired by Heath, basically, and that he had found other counsel. Yeah, there, there was a lot involved with all of that, and that was that was a shame. But hey, Heath was young; he was being influenced again. It's just hard to see that again. I was really disappointed with that. Sure. Why was it important to you, since you did pro bono for him? Why was it important to you to work with him on that clemency? I just thought he deserved it. I thought he deserved a chance. What he had been through, and after everything that had come out of what Walls had done to him. I mean, he was a kid when that started. To me, he was, he had not even had a chance to be who he really could have been. I was somewhat shocked that there was an actual chance at it, considering the brutality of these murders. And after what was coming out, then there was some doubt about whether or not he had even actually done it, or if he did, he was ordered to do it, but there was a lot of speculation in the press, and even by that special prosecutor, Ms. Dickey. And it may have been all correct, too. I'm uncertain, but I do know that I just felt compelled to help him if I could, and I was in a position to do so. And we came very close to getting it done. But, again, he was influenced by people who did not have his best interest in mind, in my opinion. Hearing Mac talk about it and kind of looking back and us having, like, an outsider bird's-eye view... It's really sad to find out how close he really was. It really is, because that was 20-plus years ago. But one decision stopped it. Heath comes up for clemency in 2006, and his grandma Dorothy is, of course, one of his biggest supporters. She is 
giving interviews and talking about how she really supports him and wants him to have a second chance. Of course, there are people who are openly opposing it as well. There's an article from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette from 2006 where they interviewed his grandmother, Dorothy, and she was 76 at the time. And she talked about how she traveled from furlough to visit Heath every few weeks, and he was at Tucker in the MAX unit then. And they quoted her as saying that she is excited at the possibility that her grandson has another chance at clemency. But like you mentioned, there are people that are opposing it, and time has passed. Larry Cook is no longer the prosecuting attorney. It's now Lana McCaslin, and she doesn't agree with Dorothy. So in this article, they interviewed her, and she said that she wrote the parole board that August opposing clemency for Heath. And they quoted her as saying, he murdered three people. I would oppose clemency for anyone who murdered three people. McCaslin said she understood that Walls' abuse scarred stocks. She said, and I think that in itself is a tragedy and is terrible. It definitely affected him, but there has to be accountability. The fact that he was a victim does not give him the license to kill someone else. So you have the Lone Oak prosecuting attorney at the time then who obviously didn't think that he deserved clemency. And there were a lot of people around the town that didn't. So his 2006 clemency bid was denied by the parole board. While there have been different people throughout the years that have both supported and spoke out against a potential release for Heath. One very interesting person that had a strong opinion on Heath's attempt at filing an appeal with the Supreme Court in 2018 was Jack Walls. He wrote a letter to Chuck Graham, the Lone Oak County prosecuting attorney. Dated February 22nd, 2018, and the subject is refuting allegations by Heath Stocks. And he says, Mr. Graham, I received word that Heath Stocks filed CR 97-9 and an amendment on the 20th and 26th of September 2017. His many grounds seem to be allegations of wrongdoing on my part and additional, quote, newly discovered evidence. I would like to refute these allegations in a notarized affidavit. However, I need to have a copy of Stocks' filing to be able to address them, including the newly discovered evidence. Stocks is counting on my silence to push his issue. He murdered his family with no help from me before, during, or after. If my statements will help your case, please let me know what I can properly, legally, and honestly do. My statements to you can be backed up by a polygraph if need be. I expect a response to this letter. Sincerely, Charles Walls. The audacity of Jack Walls never ceases to amaze me. He is in prison writing this letter to the prosecuting attorney asking him to send legal documents and statements of another prisoner. That just really reminds me of back with the Hogan trial. Jack thinks he can just get people's case files and they're at his disposal and he can just request this and he expects a response. He's in prison. And your dad's not the judge anymore, Jack. No, he's not. But he sure seems to think that Chuck Graham's going to need his help. I feel like it's very telling of how things have gone in the past for Jack. He was handed everything he wanted, anything he asked for, and people were lining up to back him up. And it's just very clear that that's what he expects in this case as well. It makes me wonder, too, the newly discovered evidence he talks about. 
What's he scared of? Why does he want to know what that evidence is? He's going to go out of his way to write a letter to the prosecuting attorney and demand the case file and the new evidence. It also reminds me of Greer's Ferry Lake where Steve Finch took the case file. And I feel like Jack is just used to people giving him whatever he wants legally. If you look back at all the footage of when Heath was arrested, Jack was arrested, Heath is being taken over to the courthouse to testify against Jack. It's a whole production that the media does. But in a lot of the videos, you see Jack's walking through the courthouse with a couple of cops on his side. He's not handcuffed. He's wearing a jacket. He's wearing like a coat. Like he goes outside and like he's just getting ready to get in his car and leave. And then you have Heath who's in black and white stripes and has a bulletproof vest on. Jack's the pedophile. And why didn't he have a bulletproof vest on? Why wasn't he handcuffed? Throughout this entire story, Jack has just gotten the red carpet treatment everywhere he went. That's what he expects to be given to him because it has been his entire life. In 2021, Heath came up for clemency again. And so he hired Michael Kaiser, who was an attorney in Little Rock, to represent him in this case. And he worked with him to put together his clemency packet, which I didn't know everything that went into a clemency hearing. You have to put together a lot of documents. You have to get a lot of people that will speak on the victim's behalf. You have to get meetings with the governor. It's a whole process. My name is Michael Kaiser. I'm an attorney with the Lasser and Castanelli firm in Little Rock, Arkansas. I know Heath because I represented him in preparing and filing a commutation application in 2020 or 2021 under our former governor, Asa Hutchinson. And ultimately that petition was denied. So can you tell me how you came about to represent him? Started working at the Lasser and Castanelli firm in October of 2019. My partners, as well as myself, Jack Lasser and Aaron Castanelli, tend to receive a lot of correspondence from the, the prison units around the state seeking help with post-conviction issues. I just kind of ended up being one of my little side passions. I always love when the mail comes in and trying to help people with issues. I think Heath wrote to either my partner, Jack Lasseter, or Aaron Castanelli, but I was the one who responded. I was aware of who he was because his case was least famous in Arkansas when it happened on both his murder case and then the Jack Walls case, civil and criminal. So I was familiar with it, but I responded to him and ultimately it led to us working together on a commutation application. What was your impression of Heath when you talked to him? You guys probably talked often. Yeah, I mean, first off, he sounds like a guy from Lone Oak. Sounds like a good old country boy. We clicked pretty quickly. He's very quick to open up emotionally and to discuss these issues that I know are very unpleasant. Once we established that rapport, it was not hard to see the remorse growth, the coming to terms with the abuse and the asset that he could be on the outside for people who've gone through similar trauma. So the motivation was there immediately because he's just a wonderful client and a wonderful person. Why do you think he opens up so easily emotionally? Do a lot of your clients do that or is it harder for you to get through with them sometimes? He opened up, I would say, a little more readily than most. I think because he knows he has to for the purpose of our representation. I mean, he kind of had to. And then I think also with him, I think he had struggled to find an attorney to do his commutation application, which was odd to me because I assumed attorneys would be lining up to be involved in this famous case. So when he wrote us and I wrote back, he wrote back saying something like, you're like the first person to get back to me in a while. I, I couldn't believe that. And so I think part of it was also desperation, sadly. Sure. 
but that was very surprising to me because no press is bad press, especially in what anyone who he'd be calling is probably a defense attorney. So I could not believe that people wouldn't touch this case. Why do you think that is? We're not a well-served state in most professional capacities and lawyers are one of them. So there's that. Uh, and then within that too small community of lawyers, there's not a lot doing clemency and commutation. It's not really law. It's more about compelling narrative. So you know, a lot of people just don't do it. And then amongst the people that do, I think just the political side of everything was a major reason why people did not want to get involved. Also, it was a massive undertaking. I probably could not have taken on that case right now today where I'm at in my practice, but I had just moved over to a new firm. So there were a lot of circumstantial reasons, but I think the main thing being we don't have enough clemency attorneys. The second thing being his case is hot and certain people were not willing to touch it. Can you kind of walk me through the clemency process and what's involved and the steps that it takes and kind of how yes. that works? Okay. It is a form that you can find online publicly, and it is a request to the governor of the state of Arkansas for a change in your sentence. It's not the same as a pardon, which would be eliminating all records that you had committed a crime and restoring you completely all rights you would have had before that. This is just a modification of the sentence. And the reason that we were requesting it was because of the major thing that did not come out during Heath's case, which was, of course, his long-term serial sexual abuse by Jack Walls. It's, I think, a seven-page application, but we ended up turning in something closer to a book because we, of course, filled out the application and its questions, but we also had a lot of character and support letters Heath wrote his own personal statement. I wrote a letter kind of summarizing everything in support. We had a lot of primary documents as well from Jack Walls' case, some psychological records from Heath's background, as well as one since he's been incarcerated, since the abuse has come out, since that, that was made a part of that psychological assessment. It's ultimately a decision by the governor. The parole board actually gets the first shot at giving a recommendation to the governor on whether to grant it or not. So they make a non-binding recommendation. Once that happens, the governor has 240 days to make their decision. Once the file goes from the parole board to the governor, and then if they intend to grant clemency, they have to post notice of it and give the public, I cannot remember if it's a 30 or 60 day period to object, and then they can finalize their decision. And the clemency is to correct something that can't be corrected through the courts. And so Heath's case presented kind of a perfect example of that. Heath has filed one post-conviction petition or even appeal of any kind ever. And I think it was closer to 2020. And that's where he raised the fact that none of the abuse had come out during his initial trial. And the Arkansas Supreme Court found that that was not new evidence because he knew about it at the time and just did not disclose it. And so that essentially boxed out that argument from ever being made in a court of law. So that's kind of why the executive clemency power exists, is to correct an injustice that doesn't neatly fit within something that the courts can do. So that's why we pursued that route. And that's why we thought he fit that relief. But it is, again, extremely rarely granted and has a lot of political considerations to it. So when you just talked about when he filed that appeal, they said that there wasn't new evidence because Heath knew about it as a victim? Correct. So there is one can file a petition for writ of error quorum nobis in Arkansas based on 
the discovery of new evidence that wasn't known and that could not have been known at the time of the original case. And so the most common thing that you hear about that would be Brady evidence. If 20 years later, you unearth police records showing they had arrested somebody else that actually committed the crime, but it was suppressed by the prosecution or wasn't produced, that's the most common thing you see. So Heath, this wasn't a Brady claim. This was essentially saying the nature of sexual abuse is that people frequently, especially males, especially at that time period, I think the median age of disclosure was like in the 40s. So the legal framework for Eric Novus doesn't really take into account the psychological reality of being a long-term victim of sexual abuse, which is, yes, a lot of people do disclose closer to the time, but a huge amount, especially with males, do not until deep into adulthood. But under the very rigid legal standard, it wasn't considered new evidence. Going back to Heath's clemency then, when you were handling that, and you mentioned that you had a lot of character letters and such. Was it a wide range of people that wrote these? Yeah, it was an extremely wide range of people family members. It, it was a lot of the people you would expect, but a lot of people you would not expect. So all of his living family members wrote really wonderful letters and for And he had a lot of people he had served time with who, some who are in, some who are out, who submitted letters discussing him as a person and how he had just been a good friend and had helped them grow, maybe their own trauma. He had several letters from people who had worked either for the Department of Correction or for other providers that work at the prison unit or volunteers. He had a couple letters from people who he's maintained written correspondence with for a long time. He does have some supporters who have never actually met him, but have come to know his story and come to know him through letters. Charles Peckett wrote a letter, I believe, Wade Knox's widow wrote a letter. There was a good group of people from the community who were around in the 90s when all this was going on. Ultimately, I don't remember the exact number, but we had to get to like the AAAs. You know what I mean? There were so many. A very wide range of people from his life before his incarceration and after. He maintains very active correspondence with a really large group. When you mentioned the family wrote those, is it common for the victims then to support clemency? No, and this is anecdotal. You know, I don't know the math, the actual rate, but in my experience, no. But this is an atypical situation where those people are both. They're family members of the person who was convicted of the crime, but also of the people who are the victims of the crime. So I'll say it's not as rare as you might think. I've had several kind of beautiful examples of restorative justice, but way more often than not, the family members of the victims are not supportive, or if one or, or a few are, the majority are not. So this was rare in that sense, but this was is not a very common case. You mentioned about a mental evaluation. How did that come about that the mental evaluation was done and, and what were you hoping to accomplish with it? I don't remember if this was something that we had done specifically as part of the commutation application or if it was something Heath had had done privately before that, but it was always with the goal of if we were filing something in court or filing something with the governor to show the lasting psychological impact of his abuse. So beyond me just saying it, and I think a lot of people now understanding without it needing to be explained on a scientific, medico, legal level, how abuse can affect you long term, we did want to have that in our application to explain the long term psychological and some lifetime deficits and effects that, that abuse had and how it would have affected him 
in not making the disclosures necessary to bring this out at the time. So we were trying to contextualize why Heath did not talk when he was facing the charge originally and explain how it has affected him to this day. There were just a lot of classic signs, even when he was evaluated back in the 90s. So we were trying to correct that psychological record, if you will. And we did include Dr. Moneypenny's testimony to kind of show the parole board and the governor how the atmosphere then versus the, the reality we know and are learning more and more every day today. Were you surprised when you had all that information in Dr. Moneypenny's statement that you didn't get a hearing even for him? No. I am a criminal defense attorney in the state of Arkansas. I don't have a lot of faith in the system that I get to see up close and personal every day, and especially much less so when we bring politics into any consideration. I mean, the easy thing to do if you're a politician is say no. There's nothing negative that can come from that. You'll have a couple angry family members, but if you say yes, in their mind, a million things that could go wrong. What if he kills someone again? Somehow that'll affect the politician, I guess. To me, it's like a plane crash. I, I fly in a plane all the time. My dad lives in Pennsylvania. Every time a plane crashes, it's front page news, but it's actually safer than driving a car or, or even in some cities than walking. The odds are so minute, kind of justifies. I mean, it's just easier to say no. It did not surprise me at all. Still gutted me, but it no longer surprises me at this point. Alana McCaslin, who was the prosecuting attorney in Lone Oak in 2006 that spoke out about Heath's clemency, she actually sits on the parole board now. And so she is able to make those decisions on if he should have clemency or not. I don't know a lot about the law, but to me, it seems like it would be a conflict of interest and that she should recuse herself. And according to the Arkansas Parole Board Handbook, there's a section in here on recusal. And one of the reasons that they say a member of the parole board should recuse themselves is if they have any other interest in the proceeding that would affect or reasonably give the appearance of affecting their judgment in the matter. So you have a person on the parole board who years earlier publicly spoke about how they opposed his clemency and not only that, wrote a letter stating why they oppose it at that time. Now, fast forward, they're on the parole board. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that she should have recused herself. That seems to me like a definite conflict of interest. It sure does. And there were two more letters that the parole board received in that clemency bid. And they were not part of Heath's packet. They were opposing his clemency. The first one is from Chuck Graham who is the Lone Oak County prosecutor now, and also the one that received the letter from Jack Walls demanding Heath's case file in 2018. So Chuck Graham writes a letter to the parole board, and it's dated October 5th, 2021. And he says, The state strongly objects to Mr. Stock's request for clemency. Rather than face a jury trial and possible death sentence, Mr. Stocks pled guilty to three counts of capital murder for killing his father, Joe, his mother, Barbara, and his 17-year-old sister, Heather. Mr. Stocks has not, as he claims, accepted responsibility for killing his family. Instead, he blames his crimes on years of sexual abuse by Jack Walls. While Jack Walls' crimes were reprehensible, in no way should they excuse Mr. Stocks from taking the lives of his family. Sadly, Mr. Walls had many victims, such as those that Mr. Stocks perpetrated. 
Mr. Stocks doesn't question the evidence against him, but merely states that his sexual abuse mitigated what he did. A reasonable jury could have disagreed and sentenced him to death. He has also received numerous reprimands while in prison, such as possession, manufacture of contraband, and theft, destruction of property. Mr. Stocks is undeserving of commutation and should serve the remainder of his life sentence for the murder of his family. I would like the opportunity to testify if a hearing is granted in this matter, and it is signed Chuck Graham, prosecuting attorney. So the letter we just heard was a revised letter that Chuck Graham sent because we also have a copy of the letter that he wrote to the parole board stating that that was his corrected letter. And this is what it says. Please accept this as my corrected letter objecting to Mr. Stock's commutation. I have omitted the alleged violation of extortion from this letter since I cannot verify he was ever reprimanded for this violation. That's really interesting. So originally, when he's listing out the different things that Heath has been reprimanded for in prison, the theft and contraband, originally he had listed extortion as one of those. And so now he's writing this letter saying, oh, never mind, that never happened, basically. After the fact. So this letter is, the second letter is coming after the clemency has already been denied. Yes, the clemency was denied in the summer of 2021. And this letter is dated October 5th, 2021. We have another letter that was written in opposition of Heath's clemency by Ashley Parker, who was and still is a circuit judge in Lono County. This letter is dated April 7th, 2021, and he states, I do not believe that this is an appropriate case for the governor to grant clemency. I believe that the defendant received an appropriate sentence for the crimes he committed. I do not believe Heath stocks that justice will not be served if his sentence is reduced. He chose to enter a plea of guilty and was sentenced to life without parole, as he bargained for with the state of Arkansas. I do not believe that the defendant would have received a lesser sentence even if a jury or the judge at the time knew about his sexual abuse at the time of trial. The defendant brutally and in cold blood killed his mother, father, and sister. The defendant was 20 years old when he committed the heinous murders of his mother, father, and sister. He was an adult and knew the consequences of his actions. I am saddened by the fact that Heath Stocks was the victim of sexual abuse by Jack Walls, but there were numerous people that Jack Walls abused, and Heath Stocks is the only one who killed his own family. I know many people that have been victims of sexual abuse over my years as a prosecutor and a judge, and Heath Stocks is the only one I know of that killed his family and not report his abuser. All the other cases I have experience with have had the victims report the abuser to family and law enforcement. I could understand showing Heath Stocks mercy for killing his abuser, but Heath Stocks chose to kill three innocent people and not his abuser. If, like Heath says in his paperwork on page 24 of 324, that he and his mother were trying to expose Jack Walls, then why did he kill the one person who had seen the abuse and was taking the steps to stop the abuse? I believe the answer is on page 25 of 324. Heath said he was ashamed of being sexually abused for so long and that he would be seen by others as a homosexual. Sincerely, Ashley Parker, Circuit Judge. I have a lot of thoughts on that letter and a lot of points I want to make really quick. So first of all, there seems to be a pattern in the way people are saying things. 
They're saying he does not need to get out. He killed his family and sister. Mm, I'm sorry that he was abused, but that really doesn't factor in. So that's one thing that seems to be repeated. Another thing is Ashley Parker says there were numerous people that Jack Walls abused and Heath Stocks is the only one who killed his own family. Heath Stocks is also the only one whose mother saw him in bed with Jack Walls. No other boys were caught like that at all. And the other thing I was going to mention too is it is proven that sexual abuse victims usually do not come forward for years. And so the fact that he says all the other cases I have experience with had the victims report the abuser to family and law enforcement, well, then that's a really good thing. If so many victims that he worked with were able just to say, hey, I'm reporting this person because that is not the norm. That stood out to me, too, when I was reading it, because my thought was, of course, all of the cases that you've tried have been reported. You wouldn't be trying the ones that aren't reported. To wrap it up by saying that he believes that's the answer to why all this happened. It seems like he might be looking in the wrong places for answers then if he's looking at page 25 where he said that, because there's so much more to this. And that last line, like you said, where he is saying that he thinks that the reason Heath killed his family is because he was ashamed that people would think that he was gay, just really goes to show the mindset of Ashley Parker, because that's the worst thing you found in there that would be motive for murder. And it's kind of crazy to me, too, to read this and think back to the different people as we interviewed and talked to them that said this would have been considered mitigating circumstances. And had it gone to trial, it probably would have turned out differently because stones would have been unturned. Things would have come up. People would have seen things. But for Ashley Parker, who is a judge, to just automatically say he doesn't believe that Heath would have received a lesser sentence, even if a jury or judge knew about that at the time of the trial, if his abuse. That's a pretty bold statement to make. You don't know that. And especially since we saw how many years and the level of mind control that Jack had not over just Heath, but all these boys. He had boys actively hunting the Hogans to kill them. He allegedly told Wade Knox that if he didn't help take care of the stocks, that the Knox house would be their next stop. Jack's biggest threat was always harm to their families. And that fact needs to be taken into consideration. Something else that needs to be taken into consideration when we look at this story and especially this clemency bid with these two letters from Chuck Graham and Ashley Parker and how Lana McCaslin came out against him in 2006 and is now on the parole board because we also came across an article from November of 2010 in the Arkansas Leader. And I found it kind of interesting when you read through it because it's titled New Prosecutor Rolls Up His Sleeves. And the article is all about how Chuck Graham was just appointed to Lenoke County Prosecutor's Office. In the article, they're interviewing him and he's talking about the different people that he's met along the way and who's been involved with his career. In this article, Graham says that Phelan's chief deputy will be leaving and in his place will be Ashley Parker, who, the article says, like Graham, started to work for Lana McCaslin in 2002. So you have both of them having worked for Lana McCaslin. They've known her many, many years. As we've learned throughout this entire podcast, the Lone Oak legal system is a very small community where they all know each other. So just to make sure that I have this straight and also to kind of sum it up, 
We have Lana McCaslin, who was the prosecuting attorney in Lone Oak in 2006. And at that time, she was publicly speaking out against Heath's clemency and also wrote a letter to the parole board. Then fast forward to 2021, Lana is now on the parole board, and we have letters opposing Heath's clemency at this time coming from Chuck Graham and Ashley Parker, who it turns out had worked for Lana years prior. And it was denied without even a hearing. At the very least, I would say that's conflict of interest all around. So Lana McCaslin, since she was a prosecuting attorney in Lone Oak, and in 2006, I came across an article in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette where she's publicly saying that she doesn't think that Heath deserved clemency at that time. And she says that she wrote the parole board about it even, that he shouldn't be granted it. Right. So then now that she's on the parole board, is that a conflict of interest? Should she have recused herself? I mean, in a court of law, the answer would undoubtedly be yes. But the parole board is not a court of law, and it gives a non-binding recommendation. So, again, this is something I'm going to have to speak with Heath about, but we made a calculated political decision not to rock the boat on that one, knowing we probably were screwed on that vote. But, yeah, I mean, it's Arkansas. Everyone knows everybody. Everyone was involved in something back in the day. Sometimes you have to make a decision that you think will yield the best result, even if you don't think it is the legally correct thing or even the maybe ethically sound thing. And to answer your initial question, yeah, I think it's a conflict of interest. But, no, I don't know of a legal mechanism. A Supreme Court justice has a conflict. The governor appoints a lawyer to just be a Supreme Court justice for that one case. There's no such mechanism with the parole board for this. So I don't know how we would have done it. And our concern was it would have created more ill will than we already had by having her there, which, I mean, it's an unfortunate calculation I have to make, but it comes up quite frequently. And then especially when you're dealing more with the political side than the court side. Just in hindsight, do you think that still that was the best choice? No, but I just don't know that anything would have made the difference. But if I had to do it again, I guess we would raise some sort of a muck about that and either ask them to vote a six or to temporarily appoint someone to fill that position for consideration of this only. I don't know how that would have gone. I think it would have been interesting to see, but we decided not to rock the boat on that one. Obviously, it didn't work out. I can't say it was because of that. It definitely didn't help. Sure. I can imagine. So in the things that they used to make their decision, they had the letters from Ashley Parker and Chuck Graham. And there then was the retraction sort of letter from Chuck Graham saying that there hadn't been extortion. So he had removed it from that. Right. Yeah, that was a big issue for us during the pendency. And once we had filed the commutation application, the sentencing court, although it's, it's no longer the same person, the same judge in the same position and the same prosecutor in the same position, again, a different person now, 30 years later, gets to weigh in. They're part of the process. So at the current Lono County prosecuting attorney filed the notice of objection and pointed to several of Heath's disciplinary violations in his more than two decades in prison as part of their basis for objecting. And they noted an extortion, which, you know, Heath has a couple disciplinaries on his record. Most are minor. Uh, most of the things that say contraband, it's for having too many of something that you need to live. But for the most part, they're extremely minor and do not involve extortion. 
So we kind of freaked out and, and asked them to fix that, retract that. And thankfully they did, even though, I mean, it, thankfully, I mean, they, they fixed their objection to make it based on the truth rather than a lie. I, mean, I, I don't think it helped us very much. Was there anything that could have been done about that? Or is that just, he says, I'm sorry, I was wrong and life goes on? Yeah. No, I mean, we got it fixed and included that in our application. Or I know we didn't include in the application because we'd already filed it. So we just made sure to get that to the governor and to the parole board, noting that their objection was based on a violation that never occurred. To me, it's the most frustrating, angering part of the legal system. The government of the state of Arkansas against one human being, the odds are already pretty stacked. The Green Bay Packers playing the Peewee Green Bay Packers, and yet they still pay the refs when they're already going to win. Talking to Michael Kaiser was very interesting to hear how the clemency process works, how it went with Heath's clemency when he worked on that, but especially to hear about some of the interviews he did, namely Judge Hanshaw. Because as we remember, he was the judge that was working on Heath's case. He was the judge that sentenced Jack. As you went through the whole process of talking to people and gathering information, how did that work? Did you talk to a lot of different people? Yeah, we spoke with the remaining family. We spoke with Charles Peckett. We spoke with Matt Carter. I think we spoke with the investigator from the original team. We spoke with a few of the other victims. We really tried to get our hands on everything that exists about Heath's case or Jack's case. Because Dr. Moneypenny didn't technically testify in Heath's case. He actually testified at Jack's sentencing hearing on behalf of Jack. You know, when we found that, we really couldn't believe it, but it was the perfect example of kind of what Heath was up against at the time. So that immediately was something we zeroed in on and used as the kind of compare and contrast where maybe not America was at, but Lone Oak, Arkansas was at in the mid-90s to what we know now. Did you talk to Judge Hanshaw? I did speak with Judge Lance Hanshaw. I've got the date here. June 17th of 2020. How did that come about? So again, we're trying to speak with and get our hands on everything. And in these cases, if you can get the support of the sentencing judge or the prosecuting attorney or someone else who's really supposed to be against us, or at least not for us, that carries a lot of weight. So I was really feeling him out to see if he would support our application, if he would submit a letter in support, if he testify if we got a hearing. That's why I reached out to him. Also to hear his take on the case if he was willing to give it. So that's why I called him. And what kind of reaction did you get from him? Was he open to talking? Yeah, he was remarkably, surprisingly willing to talk about it and to express some pretty interesting and I would say very dated opinions about the issues in Heath's case and Jack's case. Can you give me an example of one of those? So Judge Hanshaw said that Heath was a good boy before he got into all of that homosexual stuff with Jack Walls. I usually keep notes when I talk to somebody, but I kept a lot of quotes from this one because he said so many things that I wanted to be able to quote back in case I was having this conversation right now. So he essentially said Heath was a good kid until at the age of nine or ten, he decided to get sexually abused by his scoutmaster and that he was a homosexual. So kind of in a sense, victim blaming. Victim blaming 
and then some. I mean, saying that a 10-year-old can make any consensual sexual decision, which obviously Arkansas law, and I believe law in every state, says they can't. Were you just shocked when he said that? I was, and that's why I started quoting. And I call a lot of people as part of my job that are potential witnesses or character witnesses or often have nothing to give me. But so I, I do a lot of these type of interviews, and they're usually pretty boring or straightforward, or I get what is expected. But occasionally, there's one like this where it's like a hot mic situation, and I'm just trying to get as much out of them as I can before the encounter ends. What did he think about Jack? What was his opinion of Jack if he shared it? So again, I took a quote. He told me he heard that Jack was funny. That's the quote, funny. But he did not know that Jack was homosexual or a pedophile until he was charged and the evidence came out in his case. So I don't know what he meant by funny, but that's what he told me about Jack. I was going to ask you what you thought he meant about funny. The way I interpreted it was he had heard something was going on, but apparently like everyone else at Lone Oak, didn't care or didn't look or didn't want to look into it enough to see what was going on. Did he share anything with you if he thought that Jack was involved at all in the murders of Heath's family? He told me that Heath made the conscious decision to do Jack's bidding and commit the murders. So he seemed to have the same opinion that got Jack's initial sentence reversed when, you know, at Jack's initial sentencing, he expressly, explicitly said the three lives lost in his case were Jack's fault. So he still seems to hold that belief to this day. Did he have any thoughts or opinions on Heath's bid for clemency? He didn't express his personal opinion, just that he did not want to be involved, didn't want his name on anything was not willing to write a letter of support, but he did note that his bid for clemency would not be popular locally in Lono County. Were there other of Jack's boys that got into trouble that he ever saw in court that he mentioned or anything? He said he saw a lot of Jack's boys in juvenile court over the years, as well as later on in adult court. He seemed to be saying that a lot of Jack's boys had legal issues stemming from their abuse, but he never went that far. He seemed to see the connection or at least be aware that there was some connection between the two, but did not seem able or willing to make it for Heath. And that's why Heath's case is so tough. It's like right at the edge of our acceptable limit of mercy. So pretty much anyone in America, if you ask them, would say and probably believe that a victim of sexual abuse acting out in school is excusable or at least more excusable than a kid who doesn't have that trauma and is being disobedient. But when you get to the level of a homicide and then you get to the level of three of them, that's kind of testing the limits of our mercy. And that's why Heat's case is so tough, because a lot of the people who agree that an abuse victim's conduct is mitigated by that abuse also agree with capital punishment or with life without parole for murder. And so between those two, which one wins? And for most people, it seems the vengeance is more important than the abuse. When we first set out to do this podcast, we were told that there are a lot of people in the town that are on the fence about this case. I really hope that listening to this story has helped some people decide which side of the fence they're on. I think it probably has. One of my hopes is that 
It's helped people understand what Jack was capable of, what he was really like, what he did, how many people's lives he's ruined, how many families he's destroyed, not just the Stocks family, but multiple families that he's impacted. And I hope that it helps people see who he really is and what these boys struggled with and how strong they are, that they overcame it. We briefly discussed the under-21 bill in a previous episode. And so when we had the chance to talk with Michael Kaiser, we asked him if he was familiar with it and what more he could tell us about it. I had one more question. I don't know if it's something you're familiar with or not, but are you very familiar with the under-21 bill in Arkansas? Oh, yes. I've written legislation clarifying the Fair Sentencing of Minors Act that is now part of the law. Very, very familiar. Can you maybe tell me about that and kind of what it's about and what it could mean for Heath if it was passed? Yeah. So in 2012, the United States Supreme Court issued its opinion in Miller v. Alabama and Jackson v. Arkansas, and they found that the mandatory imposition of a life without sentence on someone who committed a murder as a juvenile was unconstitutional. Not that a life without sentence was unconstitutional, just a mandatory one. So In Arkansas, because death is an unconstitutional penalty for juveniles, the only punishment available was life without. It was mandatory if you were convicted of capital murder. So moving forward, the guys who had previously gotten a mandatory life without got resentenced in the range of 10 to 40 or life. Most of them got between 20 and 40. Moving forward after the passage of the act, 2017, we passed the Fair Sentencing of Minors Act, which eliminated life without as a possibility for juveniles moving forward. Now, if a kid is convicted of capital murder, it's an automatic life sentence with automatic parole eligibility at 30 years. If they receive a life sentence for first-degree murder, it's automatic parole eligibility at 25 years. And if they receive a term of years for anything short of a homicide, even if it's a million years, it's automatic parole eligibility at 20. So since 2017, since the passage of the Fair Sentencing of Minors Act, There have been several attempts to extend it to people under 21 rather than just people under 18. And so in 2021, there was a well-publicized and well-written and well-attended and well-fought bill that would have done that, that would have extended the Fair Sentencing Minors Act and all of those parole provisions and resentencing provisions to people under 21 rather than just under 18. It did not get out of committee in the Senate Judiciary Committee. I was there presenting my bill that actually clarified the retroactivity of the non-homicide parole provisions of the Fair Sentencing Minors Act. And I would say my bill actually passed because all the Republicans like left the room after they destroyed the under-21 bill and they were patting themselves on the back. And I slipped my bill through that was very helpful to a small group of people who were juveniles. But I remember the hearing... Several people, including Kaleem Nazim, testified in support of the bill. They had former incarcerated people. The senator who introduced the bill spoke on it. I believe there was a lawyer representative as well speaking on it. And the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee really used it as a way to get a lot of good sound bites of them being tough on former criminals or people who are weak on criminals. And then swiftly, I mean, destroyed it. It was like... Uh, It was extremely lopsided, so it didn't get out of committee. A similar bill was filed in 2023. I don't even think it made it to committee. So right now, the prospects for the under-21 bill are slim 
at best. And until a Republican introduces that legislation, it will have no chance in Arkansas, where we have Republican supermajorities in both houses. And the Fair Sentencing of Minors Act was introduced by Republicans in the House and Senate. The next session is in 2025. Things have not gotten better in the realm of criminal law in this current administration. They've gutted parole eligibility. They've increased sentencing on so many crimes. So to expect them to also pass what would be not just a fairly progressive, an extremely progressive nation-leading bill, it's a pipe dream. I don't see that bill having a chance unless a Republican sponsors it and introduces it. And even then, I don't have a lot of faith in our current political climate in Arkansas, let alone nationally, but definitely not in Arkansas. I I was there in 2021 at that hearing that the then Senator Trent Garner, he was almost amused hearing from the formerly incarcerated people that were there about all of the assets that we had in terms of people and their skills who were just rotting in prison, not juvenile, but later adolescent life sentences. And he was just using it as an opportunity to almost mock to make the standard conservative tough on crime points and to do so to criminals in front of cameras. So it was grotesque. It sucked because there was so much energy for the bill in the room, but it was very clear to me from before the vote that this is not happening. And not only is it not happening, it's not close. And then the bill tanked and they got a lot of copy about how they told those juvenile murderers what's what. Realistically, there is no chance that that bill passes in the near future. So say we lived in an unrealistic world and it did pass, what would that mean for Heath's sentence? So yeah, this is why I thought it might have a chance until I showed up at that hearing. We're not asking for anybody to let these dudes out. We're just saying grant them retroactive parole eligibility at 30 years or 25 if it's a first-degree murder. So it's not a pipeline to parole. It's a pipeline to parole hearings when they're in their middle age 40s. And I would hope someone with his institutional record and accomplishments would have a a real chance. But yeah, that's all it would do. It would not let anybody out the door that day. They would still have to, quote unquote, earn it through being granted parole by showing they're worthy of parole. So it's incremental. It gets them eligibility. It doesn't get them out. And it still relies on the political entity that is the parole board. Most people age out of the bullshit in their late 20s or mid-20s. Most people who go in as juveniles or late adolescents have a very poor institutional record at the beginning as they're adjusting and because they're children and they get preyed on. Most of them normalize, level out in their mid to late 20s, kind of just like people do on the outside. So Heath still has a lot of meaning in his life despite no realistic shot at release right now. He is not the exception. So I do think there are some people who have given in to the weight of the hopelessness and maybe more so when they were younger. And that is reflected in their institutional record, but a lot less so with these guys in their 30s, 40s, 50s. If we were in New York, I have no doubt Heath would have used their law for victims of sexual or physical violence to be resentenced and that he would have been and that he would likely be out or near out. In the last episode, we talked with Rob Evett, and he shared how he was planning to visit Heath again after not having seen him since that day in court decades ago. We were able to talk with him again after that visit happened and found out how it went. Since you had your visit with Heath recently, can you kind of walk me through what that was like for you and kind of your thoughts and how it went? 
Yeah. So it actually started kind of funny. Uh, believe it or not, I got up that morning, got dressed, double checked, made sure, read some of the, the rules about coming down there and what you could have and what you couldn't. And, you know, made sure to clean the car out. And I grabbed some a plastic bag with some quarters in it and dressed in regular nice clothing and went down there and uh, got there a little bit early. They checked the vehicle. Everything was fine. I went into the front area where you check in and I was given the information that shorts are not an accepted apparel, even though they were a nice pair of shorts. And they told me that I couldn't come in because I had shorts on, which just kind of blew my mind. They said that they would let Heath know that I was going to be late. I ran down and to a Dollar General and bought a pair of sweatpants. So again, kind of surprised me that they would let me come in with sweatpants, but they wouldn't let me come in with shorts. And um, anyways, went through the facility, told them it was my first time. They walked me through the prison and it's kind of weird. You walk through, they have a, a man trap right behind the, the visitor center when you get there where you have to walk through one door. It has to lock. You're inside this little area. Then they unlock the other door and then it's this sidewalk into the building and you get in there and they meet with you and I told them who I was there to see and you walk in and there's a vending machines there where you can grab Coke, candy bar, whatever. I really didn't know what to expect, but it's these long rooms that have little seating areas, almost like telephone booths, but wider, just wide enough for two chairs. And I told them who I was there to see. And of course, I was already late. I was about, you know, 20 minutes late because of the clothing issue and all of the other people were already there talking and came around the corner and, and saw him and he just stood up and, and smiled at me. And I smiled back at him and, you know, he stuck his hand out and I shook his hand and gave him a big hug. And, you know, whenever we got done hugging, he looked at me and first words out of his mouth were, so shorts, huh? <laughs> I said, uh, I said, yeah, I said, I didn't know. And he said, nope. He said, you can't wear shorts here. And I said, well, now I know. I said, I know better for the next time. And uh, we both just kind of laughed about it. You know, and we sat down and it was funny. I think I told you before that the last time I saw him was at Jack's hearing. And we had nodded to each other and, a, hey, how you doing kind of thing. And, and it was just like picking up that conversation, you know, 25 years later. And we both look older, but it was like looking. It was like having a conversation with that kid when I was a senior in high school and and he was in 10th grade. And, you know, even though he's, you know, this, what, 45-year-old man now, it was still like looking at the heat that I knew in high school. And, you know, the conversation bounced back and forth from, you know, how is he doing? How are you doing in prison? Are you okay? And, of course, we talked about Jack, and we talked about the things that he did and the manipulation that he had. And we talked about my family and what I've done in the last 25 years and what we've done since. And, we talked a little bit about the lawsuit that's going on now. We talked a lot about the podcast. And of course, he was extremely thankful and grateful that I decided to come out and tell my story, tell my part of it. I told him why I did it and that I just wanted, if he ever got the opportunity to tell his story, I just wanted to make sure that the entire story was told at least as much as anybody could hear it. Like I said, he was very, very grateful for that. But it was two people that were friends for a long time that hasn't seen each other in 25 years. And and I mean, we we talk constantly. Matter of fact, I think the two of us were the, the last two to leave. And everybody else was getting up and had left. And, you know, we were still talking. We still had stuff to talk about. And I did tell him when I got there and pretty early on that I was sorry that I hadn't come to see him before. And it's just, 
I don't really have a reason. I'm not even going to try to make a reason why. But he was very, you know, man, don't worry about that. That's, you know, you're here now and you're telling your story now. You're right here in front of me now. And that's what matters. So I think it'll definitely be something that I'll continue to, to keep in touch with him. And, you know, we talked about the fact that he can receive email and obviously we can talk that way and see each other in that type of communication. And I think I even said it the last time that I talked to you, my first thought was this is almost like closure, but it's not really the closure as it is just a new chapter, really. Having heard from Matt Carter throughout this podcast and learning about his original involvement with Heath's case as his death penalty attorney, and then finding out how he had worked on his first clemency bid pro bono, we wanted to find out how he feels about things today. And I know you did pro bono for him previously, so to today, do you think that he deserves clemency? Is that what he's seeking now, clemency or commutation? Oh, I, uh, he had one denied like a year or two, but I'm just opinion, if you think he deserves a second chance of life. Yeah, yeah. He, how long has he been in prison now? Almost 96? Almost 26 years. 26 years. Mm-hmm. How old was he when he was convicted? Twenty. 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 I think. Yeah, he he deserves. I, I don't know who's on the parole board right now, but I hope this is seriously looked at. He does deserve a chance at something. Uh, if not now, eventually soon. How old is Heath now? Forty-six. Oh my God, that's hard to believe. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, he does deserve. I think he does deserve it, considering all the circumstances. Dorothy, uh, she was on board with this, if I recall, because she was alive at the time, and I remember talking to her. She was my main go-to person. Now it's coming back to me, and Dorothy and I spoke a lot when I was representing him for that effort then. But yeah, of course I did. Representing pro bono, try to get it then, in light of the discoveries of Jack Walls. Uh, without doubt, he does. So lastly, and since it's been 25 years, what what makes you want to continue to talk about this? I don't like things to be forgot. I mean, uh, our people. I mean, Heath. There's so many people down there who may have good reasons for their cases to be looked at again. And and with all that's come out for Heath, it, it should not be forgotten. As it stands today, Heath will not be eligible for another clemency hearing until 2029. If you would like more information on his case or are legal counsel interested in being involved, please reach out to us at lifewithoutpod at gmail.com. We have been contacted by multiple people in Lone Oak and the surrounding area since we started this podcast. Not only people who were impacted by Jack Walls and his decade-long reign of terror, but others that weren't around when this was going on. They've shared how similar things are going on today still in that area. We strongly recommend reaching out to local authorities if you are aware of anything of this nature. If you don't feel comfortable doing so, you can also call the Arkansas Child Abuse Hotline at one 800 482 5964 or the National Child Abuse Hotline at 1-800-422-4453. This is the end of our season, but it is not the end of the story. 
Make sure you're following us to stay up to date on future developments and bonus episodes. You can find links to all of our social media on our website, lifewithoutpod.com. You'll also find information there on how to join our Patreon, where we will be sharing our exclusive interviews in full. Over the coming weeks, we will be updating our website with never-before-seen pictures, home video, documents we have discussed throughout this podcast, as well as the recent affidavit by Jack Walls in 2020. We want to thank our listeners for joining us on this journey. We have told not just Heath's story, but the story of so many others. And we want to also thank everyone that has interviewed with us and reached out to us. It takes a lot to share your story and to be vulnerable like that. And it's people telling their story that helps bring about change. In addition, we want to thank Dylan Edward Allen, our co-producer and editor, as well as Colin Thomas, our music and audio engineer. Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.